You're listening to Rock, Pop, and Roll. So who was? Who was the best, the biggest, and the most consistent rock band of the 1980s? That's a question that was banging around in my head for more than a week, a month. Sometimes it uh, seems longer than that. But I have a winner, and you're not going to like it. Or maybe you will. Open mind. Open ears. This is rock, pop, and roll. Welcome to it. It is rock, pop, and roll. And it is episode number 21, The Case... For you too, were they the biggest and the best rock and roll band of the 80s? I was thinking about truly, who, who truly, really was the biggest and best of the 80s, and I can't say, I can't say no to you too. I can't. So I, st- I, st- I started going through the list. Who could it be? Who are contenders for that crown? Springsteen and the E Street Band. Now they're right up there, right? But the river was actually 1979. Then it was Nebraska. So Bruce's only really band album of the decade was Born in the USA. And I mean, nothing wrong with that, right? But it was really just one album. And then Tunnel of Love was essentially a solo studio album with some help from some of the guys. And Ladies of the band. Petty in the 80s, always solid. Prince, I mean, you had 1999 and Purple Rain back-to-back and the live shows from Prince in the 80s, terrific. Bon Jovi, you could laugh if you want to, but Bon Jovi was huge. The best? No, no. Def Leppard, we could talk about it. I mean, a lot of contenders. Journey Queen, late decade, Guns N' Roses, Van Halen. In the 80s, somehow underrated and overrated at the same time. You had The Police. I mean, Every Breath You Take was the Synchronicity album. Every Breath You Take was like a number one for two months. Uh, The album was huge uh, until Quiet Riot came and knocked it off its pedestal. ZZ Top, ACDC, I mean, REO Speedwagon had had high infidelity. Underrated somehow, I think. High infidelity, great, great rock album. A little studio gloss to it, but it rocked. And a half a decade of hits for REO. So they had the... Come on. That's a lot of great rock and roll. And and people like to throw stones at Bono. He's earnest, right? Some say manipulative to the betterment of his career. I think he both knows what he's doing and he means it. It's from the heart, I think. Bono, in his soul, he believes it. I'm with Bono. I'm not against it. The band is so non-ironic that it scares some people, right? They care. They reinvent. They tour stadiums. They do it well. Some still hate them. Well, screw them. I'm on board. And I, Rob Nichols, is going to tell you why you 2 uh, carries the banner as the as the best of the 1980s. Welcome to Rock, Pop, and Roll. As we said, podcast number 21. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob. We talk rock and roll and pop music from the playlist of the decade of the 19th. 1980s, directly from the middle of Indiana. We're, we're uh, recording this live to digital in the heartland. Oh, 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 
So there's, a, there's, there's one fact that we need to make clear. You two built their reputation on live shows. They did. Yeah, they were a political band. There were hints of a Christian rock band. Bono likes to talk. The Edge created a sound that is his and now ours. All true. But back to that first point, they created a live show that was passionate and loud. It was reaching for the back row kind of brilliant. And they may have never been better than in 1984. Because by this time, they had the songs. They had Bad, New Year's Day, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Pride, In the Name of Love, I Will Follow, Gloria. I mean, that's a freaking great set list. And they were playing it in 1984 on the Unforgettable Fire Tour. So this was their last great stand as a, as a kind of punk band before they started to become the next U2. Not punk in the Sex Pistols way, but there was, there was that element to them. The Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum came after uh, I've got a link in the show notes to a show in 1984 in Dortmund, Germany, which is great, great sound. It has of the times video work, so, you know, it's mid-80s and just take it for what it is. But it's real and it's live. And the band was freaking on fire in Germany in 1984. So before we talk about what may be one of the greatest rock albums of the past 50 years, let's revisit an album, a movie, and the blowback from those that brought a whole decade of greatness to a point where the band blew themselves up, reinvented their sound. That would come, but first there is the business of Rattle and Hum. saw Rattle and Hum in the theaters three times. I did. Like the 11, the 11.30 showing. Uh, it was Sunday night, I think. I think we always went on a Sunday night. And uh, it was it was me with my rock and roll buddy of the time, the late, great Tom Smith in Jackson, Michigan. I think by the third time, I, I swear this is true, by the third time the word had got out that the projectionist He knew that these two buzzed kids were back to see Rattle and Hum, and he cranked the sound so loud that third night, I swear, they blew the speakers at the Jackson, Michigan movieplex where we were seeing these things. There have been movies that were concerts, right? There's a lot of them. Go back to Woodstock. But in 87, not so much. You had a big screen, big sound kind of thing. Now it's on the home computer, the headphones and that rocks. It's great. But Rattle and Hum, it was a moment where there was this big, loud thing in a darkened theater, all majestic and bombastic and overblown and great. Rattle and I said it. Rattle and Hum, great. Re-listening to, e, to, to that record, it's you too, kind of taking license, taking license granted by a decade of building album upon album, credibility with music fans, radio listeners, with fans of both pop music and something greater, rattle and hum, staying in some kind of pocket of sound and vibe that was all and only you too. They were so big at the time. The album wasn't bad. The reviews were all couched in this, well, it's overblown, it's too big and all that crap. But if you listen again, there's some great music on that Rattle and Hum album. This was the end of the decade. It was dismissed as grandiose and histrionic, but they had Desire as a great single that Bo Diddley beat, and and the second song on that album also had a Bo Diddley beat. Who does that? This song called Hawk Moon 269. Like a fury out, I need your love. 
Was it was it audacious? I I, I don't know. Unexpected and kind of bold. I don't know. Who puts two Bo Diddley beats? Who Bo Diddley beat back to back to on the follow up to Joshua Tree? So I give him credit for that. Some weird Bo Diddley way. So the argument was that U2 was confident they could come off as pompous, and this album was them over that edge and not likable. That's what the critics were saying. I don't know about that part. Because what I hear is a band on this album diving into sounds that were uniquely American, 50s rock, a deeper dive into gospel. I'm not the first to write this or say this. It was an homage, though, to people like Dylan, who co-wrote Hawkmoon 269, and Keith Richards, who co-wrote the original B-side song called Silver and Gold. Were it released right now, this album would be heralded as, as the greatest thing that U2 has done in 30 years. I mean, they had the singles, right? Angel of Harlem, the legendary Memphis Horns of Stax fame. You cannot resist the horns. They had a single on there called uh, When Love Comes to Town with B.B. King. That's the uh, rattle and hum cut. Elevated. The single elevated B.B. King to the radio in the 1980s. So, <laughs> leave it alone. Love it. And there's the slow burn anthem of All I Want Is You, a little forgotten track that was a single. After that, they would change direction, and they would never quite be what they were. It never quite recaptured that love affair with American rock and roll. But we still we still haven't talked about the biggest and the best and what has got them to rattle and hum. And beyond, there was that live portion of what they did in the early 80s into the mid-80s. Great live band. Then there was this at the end. What was the middle? This is Rock, Pop, and Roll, the podcast. And why, after much thought, I think that U2 was the biggest and the best rock band of the 1980s. Thanks for tuning in the podcast. Thanks for subscribing. Check out the show notes. Stuff in there that you want to hear. And we've got the companion piece now. The Rock, Pop, and Roll radio show. Spotify exclusive. Find it on Spotify. Look for Rock Pop Roll Radio Show and it'll pop up right there for you. I listen to a lot of U2 for this podcast. And their true golden moment may have well come before their golden album. The 83, the 84, and into 85 U2 was amazing. They hadn't broken into the mainstream, but rock fans knew who they were. Their shows were already legendary. And without the run-up to 1987... The rest of it might have not happened, but it did happen, and we're going to get to it in a moment, but first, a little U2 history. Boy, their their first album peaked at number 63 in the United States, and the album, it did include the band's first songs to receive airplay on U.S. radio, including uh, the single I Will Follow, which reached number 20 on the top tracks charts. Twenty on the top tracks. That's on that at the time is what it was called. It was rock radio. For the October album, they had the single Gloria, which we heard at the top of the show. U2's first song to have its music video played 
on the early days of MTV. The October tour of 81 and 82, this was a fact that I didn't know. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. The band played 14 dates as the opening act to Jay Giles' band when Jay Giles was uh, on the centerfold freeze frame success that tour. The next album, War's lead single, was New Year's Day, which was released on the first day of January of 1983. War debuted at the top of the UK album chart, although there was some British British backlash already starting. NME, the magazine, said uh, the great personal fury, quote-unquote, of U2's early work had been replaced by what they called literal but sincere sloganeering. Yeah, they're not wrong. Uh, the single, New Year's Day. Was top 10 in the UK. It peaked at number 53 in the US. They released the album in February and it we're leading to the Red Rock show in Colorado on that tour. That was their first real, that was their first big moment. People saw that on MTV and the VHS, and it was a clue that this was a band that had something. The week before they recorded the Red Rocks show, they had played at the Us Festival in California on Memorial Day. 125,000 people. The Us Festival was held for two years. It was broadcast live on early MTV, and this was the, the performance the broadcast where uh, Bono climbed a hundred feet up to the top of the Us Festival stage, huge stage, while he was singing The Electric Company. Uh, and a week later, they recorded at Red Rocks. They released Under a Blood Red Sky. It was a eight song EP. It gave you the uh, you know you need to go see the live show crown to their reputation. The live album was produced by Jimmy Iovine. The eight tracks were compiled from three concerts during the 83 war tour. It was interesting that I found out, so Under Blood Red Sky, the EP, was not all Red Rocks. You get confused because two of the songs were from that June 5th show that they did at Red Rocks. It was released, at the, that show was released as a video called U2 Live at Red Rocks, Under a Blood Red Sky. And it was a companion to the live album, but the covers look the same, but it's two two different things. You might, you know, you might have thought, I thought they were the same thing, but no, one of them is a compilation of three shows and the video is actually from that Colorado show. Uh, the War album, has, it was a really good album, a smart record, but it felt, it was not American feeling, not quite British, it was European, had, the, had a, some kind of feel uh, that was not of the States. The video for, <laughs> the video might have helped that because that was the, that was the video where the band was was performing Sunday, Bloody Sunday in the Snow. On the tour, Bono was more theatrical. He'd wave his big white flag during performances of Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Waving the flag at Red Rocks, you remember that? found a great quote from the bassist for you, for you too. Adam Clayton said, if you reduce you 2 down to the waving of the white flag, which is a moment from the war tour, he says, that would be the worst thing. Clayton says at the time, I think it was in the spirit of the performance. We weren't very ironic people back then, but we were pretty serious and we didn't see that we could have been a little more subtle about things like that. But hey, as mistakes go, we said, 
That's not a bad one. All magnified at the Red Rock Amphitheater with the legendary fog and the rain that was at that show. Hugely important in U2's career. Our God, they were so young. <laughs> Weren't they? Go watch that again from 83. It's a piece, though, that bridged being cult to going big. And all they had to do was uh, make one great album. And they did. But first, they played at Live Aid, July 1985. That's where, if you look at their career arc, that's where you two became stars. Near the middle of their Live Aid set, it had taken Bono a lot longer than expected to pull out a fan from the audience. He'd done it before, but not from the stage of a stadium where he had to jump 10 feet into a pit, get security to drag someone over the fence, dance with her, and then get back on stage. So the band had to vamp and extend their performance of Bad by nearly five minutes. So they had to, they had to cut playing Pride in the Name of Love. Didn't play to Live Aid. Was on the set list. You two thought they'd screwed up. The Edge said, quote, Bono felt like it had been kind of clumsy and generally the whole thing hadn't lifted up. But on TV, watching it, it worked. It was the myth-making moment. They added snippets of Ruby Tuesday, Walk on the Wild Side. Sympathy for the devil into the song. It was their star-making moment and they didn't blow it. It's not an electric performance. I'll put the I'll put the link into the into the show notes for it. You need to watch that Live Aid and U2. And U2, as they were uh, completing their supporting tour for Unforgettable Fire, they released a a four-track EP called Wide Awake in America. It was really a time killer until it was time for Joshua Tree, which I, I probably, I say with good confidence, the best album of the 1980s. U2, Joshua Tree. Better than Born in the USA. Better than Thriller. Better than Purple Rain. Better than Slippery When Wet. Better than, better than most of the rest. There's always an argument, right? But here's why. It was majestic without losing the rock and roll. It challenged with some songs that were not just about romantic love, but a deeper love of people and places and moments. It was the sound of the edge. It was the pulse of drummer Larry Mullen, bassist Adam Clayton propelling a rock band uniquely. It was a crap ton of great radio songs. The first single was this smoldering with or without you. The greatness of the rhythm section of U2. It went to number one. Ah, It sounded so good on the radio. They had another number one that came right after. It still haven't found what I'm looking for. The gospel of U2. Number ones back to back. One of the great slow builds of the 1980s was the uh, was the third single. It did not go number one, but it was top 20 with number 13 with a great iconic video. Those were the three. 
Those are the three tunes that were front-loaded onto that album. The first three things that you heard from the Joshua Tree. Bam, bam, and bam. One, two, three. The rest of the record, Bullet the Blue Sky, Red Hill Mining Town. Got a little radio airplay, a little rock radio airplay. More there than on a top 40 station. Red Hill Mining was actually a song that the label wanted as a, as a single. It's more like the older U2 sound, so they did a video. They hated it. It's on YouTube. Look it up. It's not good. Smart smart that they did not release it. It was a heavy-handed little video, the heavy-handed side of the band that they were always trying to suppress. In God's Country was actually the fourth single in late 1988, and they released it just before they released that Rattle and Hum album. Only got up to number 44, a little sideways misstep. I think there were other songs that were easier to like. That's what they went with, though. Had the iconic edge guitar. But the whole album, minus maybe two songs, is spectacular in its ability to create each of those songs four minutes or so of magical, magical majesty. I love running to stand still. I love the song trip through your wires we talked about one tree hill the stalking track that patiently the band patiently builds and they nail it on this song with the vocals and the guitars and the rhythm You're listening to Rock and Pop and Roll. Rock, Pop and Roll. RockPopandRoll.com. Thanks for subscribing. These guys are a band, right? Four guys making their own unique sounds and contributions that without one, U2's not U2. Adam's Clay- Adam Clayton, his bass, such a driving piece of their sound. Uh, I read a book about U2 early, it's been years ago. Talked about how Adam Clayton's bass was kind of the lead guitar of their early sound. Rarely is a bass player so integral. Larry Mullen has a style, that U2 style, The Edge, his guitar sound, Bono, his everything. And they slogged. They found fans. They were on the road almost eight years before they discovered America. They rocked America. They made the Joshua Tree. They indulged with rattle and hum. They changed their sound in the 1990s and thrived. They survived. They still survive. Yes, the Rolling Stones are the Stones, and considered rightly through catalog, longevity, and attitude as the greatest band of all time, U2 is still in that conversation. For a decade plus more, they were the kings of rock and roll. They never did two albums quite the same. Nobody did it more passionately with purpose, consistency, and still pushed their creativity to a ledge where they were not afraid to hang their career from. That's rock and roll. Thanks for listening to the podcast. The greatest band of the 1980s, I'm saying you too.
Subscribe to Rock, Pop, and Roll on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on iHeart Podcast, on Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review, would you, at Apple Podcasts. Give us some stars. We would appreciate it. Go ahead and do it. Share Rock, Pop, and Roll with a friend who loves rock and pop music from the decade of the 80s. Yeah, tell your rock and roll friends. Word of mouth. Best thing you can do. Well, the second best. The first the first best thing you can do is keep listening. We love you for it. Find us on Twitter at 80s Rock Pop Roll. 80s 80s Rock Pop Roll. You can email us at rockpoprollpodcast at gmail.com. Got a show suggestion? Let us know. Leave us a note. If you like the show, share it with someone who loves 80s pop and rock and roll. And we told you we started the Rock Pop and Roll radio show on Spotify. Look for us there, and we'll uh, leave the link in the show notes. It's a Spotify exclusive. You can hear our first episode, a tribute to the Stones and a great Charlie Watts. Let's end with some, some last facts, some final facts about the Joshua Tree. That album, they began recording in January of 1986 in Ireland. They rented a house. They set up a live recording room. They brought in equipment. Daniel Lenoir, the producer, wanted to capture much of the essence of a live band as much as possible without overdubbing. So they recorded together. And he didn't want them to have headphones. He wanted to use monitors, speakers in front of them. He said the power gave them extra power for... uh, for what they wanted to put on tape through that performance. They tried to isolate the sound, but they couldn't do it. There's what's called bleed over when you can hear the guitar amp coming through the vocal mics, and it makes it so that you you just have to get a good take. Producer Lenoir said, you have to make a commitment to what you put down and either use it or you throw it all away. And that's how they made the album. Hey, again, thanks for listening to Play Us Out. It's a piece of the live version of Running to Stand Still, recorded in 1987 in Paris. You two, in their moment. on Spotify with the Rock Pop and Roll Radio Show. We've got lots of links in the show notes. Go watch Bad. Go watch Bad at Live Aid from 80. And go watch YouTube from 84 in Germany. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Rob. Be good to each other. Subscribe to Rock, Pop, and Roll wherever you get your podcast and find all the episodes at rockpopandroll.com.